everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. Animals are social eaters, at least some. The some would be those that are domesticated and particularly, I have in mind, pets. Now I can speak to more generally dogs. I've had much more experience with dogs throughout my life. I suppose second to that would be cats. But then I hear people also talk about other pets, birds, reptiles even, that really make a big deal out of food and eating. I know dog owners for sure out there. Cat owners, I believe too, can relate. Eating can be a big deal socially. Uh, Your pets like your company. Your pets enjoy that. Now, maybe it is those animals that might have a bit of a reliance upon the social dimension when it comes to, (laughs) in a more natural sort of context, evolutionary context. Pack animals, numbers was important to getting food. Maybe it's just, besides that, or additional to that as another factor, that it may have something to do just with the fact that uh, animals do have some social dimension. They may not be hunting for food any longer. You may be the primary source of their food, and so why why would there not be some positive, conditioned association? Between you being there and then the magical presentation of food. Every time you're there, food shows up. Or you're the one that brings the food to them. Now, I know that that doesn't, in a more natural context, doesn't work for every animal. I'm not sure cats particularly are as much inclined as maybe as dogs. But I do think there's a social, certainly social dimension to that. There are probably those animals that are solitary And with that, more solitary and less inclined to be part of a larger number for either the benefit of capturing prey, killing prey, sharing food for survival. But I think humans being animal, we have some of the same aspects to our relationship with food. There's always going to be a social dimension. Psychology Today by Gabrielle Ferreira, LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. The article is entitled, Tuning Into Hunger, Another Way to Eat Right. Again, the edition is January, February of 2023. We are born intuitive eaters. Have a meal with a toddler. They may take two bites of food and then decide they're done and only to ask for food again in an hour. The toddler is tuning in to an innate ability to intuitively eat to recognize cues for hunger and fullness. But we live in a world full of schedules, deadlines, and commutes. These factors can inhibit our ability to eat intuitively, encouraging us to ignore natural hunger cues. Our bodies are not a math problem to be solved. 
When we eat intuitively, we eliminate the mental gymnastics that accompany eating in a diet culture. The effort we put into making food decisions can backfire, resulting in a cycle of restricting and binging. Intuitive eating and anti-diet concept developed by Evelyn Trebol and Elise Resch in the late 1990s identifies four different types of hunger. Since the publication of their book, Intuitive Eating, more than 150 studies have expanded on their theory. Physical hunger is what most people ascribe to the term hunger. It can manifest as a growling stomach, a headache, feeling faint, and a variety of other physical symptoms. In a perfect world, we would tune in to physical hunger by eating when our bodies feel hungry. But that's often not possible. One way to address this challenge is to have quick, easy snacks on hand throughout the day to satiate your hunger cues without too much disruption. Taste hunger is the desire for a specific food due to its taste. Nutritionist Rocky Helfrich calls it eating what sounds good to you. Unfortunately, diet culture sometimes get in the way or gets in the way of tuning in to this type of hunger by hardwiring us to value foods as good or bad, causing us to ignore our taste hunger. When faced with the decision about what to eat, take a moment to pause, breathe, and check in with yourself. You might get a gut feeling when you imagine eating a certain food and think, ah, that's what I wanted. When you have this moment, listen to it. Try not to let diet culture or overthinking creep in. Emotional hunger is eating to satisfy an emotional need. When you practice tuning into your hunger, you'll eventually be able to distinguish emotional hunger from the more biological, physical hunger. Emotional hunger gets a bad rap, but the criticism is most often attributed to its extremes. This type of hunger exists on a continuum from mild sensory gratification and comfort to binging and punishment. In its milder form, we can turn to food to satisfy positive emotions. Consider holidays or consider holidays like Thanksgiving where food is a significant part of the celebration and a symbol of togetherness. A grilled cheese on a rainy day can be a way to self-soothe. Hot apple cider on a winter night can bring you happiness and coziness. Further along the spectrum, if you're eating low main until you can't breathe, this may be a sign that you're misplacing your feelings and could benefit from seeking help in dealing with underlying emotions driving this time of eating. Avoid assigning moral value to a type or quantity of food as this invites feelings of shame or embarrassment. We can feel free to eat for emotional reasons without burdening ourselves with guilt or feeling that we need to make it up or make up for it. Practical hunger is the act of eating even in the absence of hunger cues. 
because you know you might not have a chance to eat again for a while. This may be the most important type of hunger for people with busy schedules. Practical eating protects us from getting too hungry later. Let's say you're a therapist with back-to-back sessions from 5 to 8 p.m. Maybe you aren't hungry for dinner before that, but it's the only chance you'll have to eat for the next few hours. So you have a bite before your sessions, even though you are not experiencing physical hunger cues. With practical hunger, you can always check in with your hunger cues later on and decide if you need more food and then make a decision based on your intuitive on your intuitive self-assessment. By preparing for practical hunger, we protect ourselves from getting too hungry and feeling the negative effects of restriction or lack of nourishment. I often ask my clients, do you ever wonder what would occupy your brain if you weren't stressed or overthinking about food and your body so often? Eating intuitively allows us to use our cognitive functions in other areas to focus more on the important stuff, our mental health, well-being, and ability to think about what's meaningful in our lives. Again, Psychology Today, January, February 2023, tuning into hunger, another way to eat right by Gabrielle Ferreira, who is a licensed clinical social worker in New Jersey. Now, this would all presume, (laughs) the intuitive part that is, that we were in some sort of context to as natural a condition or evolutionarily so, the most natural of conditions, contingencies, that has brought us to, in evolutionary terms, the place that we are. I'm not sure that is a sound or solid presumption. The world is not as it was at the beginning, whenever that might be, of our humanity, whenever that might have been of our humanity. The world is much more complicated in this sense. Hunger being a primary drive is still a primary drive. We need it for survival. But the contingencies, we don't have to go foraging for it. We don't have to contend with in foraging whether or not the season is right for a particular food, even if we have a taste for it. Or if it is in inhospitable sort of times, seasons, where there is not produce, there is not something to eat that is fresh or growing and readily available. We didn't in some way store the food could have we could we have even done that in more primary sort of contingencies time contingencies back when it all began as our humanity might have gone or goes that may be preemptive then as much to not only taste but availability of food we'd have to hunt if we weren't foraging, or to somehow augment our vegetable or our plant-based sort of diet, we might actually need more calories, 
We may have only animals available to us during those inhospitable sort of seasons that we had to rely upon. There is always something to be said for one's natural attributes and skills and physical abilities and capabilities that plays into that. If you weren't physically endowed or there was maybe some condition physically that rendered you disabled on whatever level, physical, mental, psychological, or bodily, maybe you would rely on more the pack instinct. As we talked about animals at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, maybe you would need friends. Maybe it is a family situation then. Maybe you've lost your family. We could go on and on and on with the myriad of possible contingencies. And in that, intuitive eating is somewhat questionable because even if you use the model that Psychology Today presents, as with this author in Psychology Today presents, the idea, though, is, is that all of this is secondary to a new set of circumstances. <laughs> it takes maybe five minutes, depending on where you live. Could be as short a time as five minutes to find food at a restaurant and or a grocery store. You probably have it in your cupboard. There's preservatives that keep it there. You're not dependent upon the seasons. You don't have to go out and hunt it. It's not so much a matter of even the physical attribute, the capability Factor or factors that play into potentially play into that, whether you get as that primary drive would be for food for the sake of survival, whether you get that primary drive met or not. Taste is the same way. We have so many different options now because of all of those things the processing of food, the preservation of food, the availability of food. None of this is really as tied to environmentally, the ecology, the connection we have with the natural dimension and element of our food source, even what we turn to as source of food. We can choose pretty much to do and be anything that we want. So I like the notion that you could somehow make it intuitive, but I think it's a little bit flawed, at least theoretically, in the sense. How do you know? Now, one of those intuitive dimensions, as the article identifies it, is the physical hunger. And that is when your body just says, through growling stomach, headache, feeling faint other physical symptoms, it's time to eat. But that doesn't really then solve all the other things that go with taste and emotional and then even practical hunger. Those are more higher kind of cortical or cognitive functions. And I do believe the author speaks to some aspect of just that particular line of thought in this way. She does reference... The idea that intuitively eating or eating intuitively allows us to use our cognitive functions in other areas to focus more on the important stuff, our mental health, well-being, and ability to think about what's meaningful in our lives. Not that that necessarily is circular thinking or so intuitively so, in that way, connected to food or correlated to food 
But I think it is intuitively connected, almost, beyond need for human conscious consideration, to a general need for satisfaction. Now, is satisfaction primary drive? Yeah, is the only primary drive we have no food? No. Food is one of many primary drives, along with water and sleep and even procreation. Sex. Those are all we consider to be primary drives, the most powerful motivators. I would likely say that, rather than just hunger and the association with food, food could be a specific instance of that. But hunger in general is just dissatisfaction. Something is missing in our life or lives that speaks to a primary drive. And we have to, at some level, register it. You have to know if it's food. You have to know if it's water. You have to know if it's some other procreation dynamic. If it's sleep deprivation. How to go about it. How to turn off what really is the trigger, the thing that brings triggers our awareness. Ah, something's not right here. Okay. Maybe if we were animals, it would be easy because we wouldn't have the higher cortical functions that we do. We not, would not have maybe the cognitive operations that we do. And in that sense, it is an evolu- evolutionary challenge or more or most naturalistically attached or correlated Because as animals, we have those things. And whether other animal species do or don't, they're probably not, as we'd all agree, as elaborate as ours, at least to our best awareness. Again, we think about things a lot and we make a lot of decisions. But that's probably where the complication begins. If it was just so easy as I'm hungry and I need to eat, I'm thirsty and I need to drink... I feel a need to procreate. I need to go to sleep. All of those things are primary drives, but secondary drives are things that get us what we want. And since we're not going out and necessarily foraging any longer or hunting any longer in that way that we might have at the beginning of, again, it all, our humanity... We nonetheless do have to do things that secondarily become attached to the primary that gets us what we need. And those are the things that oftentimes disrupt our primary needs. You have to sort it out. It's almost impossible to completely separate that. And that would be my best feedback on the article. Uh, or point on the article of some contention is it's not that simple. I would want us to be able to, in psychological counseling terms, realize we do have abilities to make it simpler or we can begin to identify, and that's what I think the article's intention is, to help us to identify the possibility there's other factors and why we're approaching food in the way that we do. But it may not just be food. You may be missing something else and mistaken it as hunger. Or it might be because hunger, food, is so easily fixed in our society. Not all human cultures 
Not all societies and cultures have access to food in the same way that we do, as with the North American continent, uh, probably more specifically the United States. We have so much of a surplus. It's just given us way too much to think about. It's given us way too much in cognitive sort of terms we have not only the opportunity to think about it, which is not, again, disadvantaged. That's advantage. That's what I was trying to say earlier of all the animals. That is probably as much a part of why we are apex, highest order, as anything on, in evolutionary terms. But at the same time, though, the peril is that if we don't do a proper analysis and recognize it's not just hunger... There may be other things going on if we don't sit down, and she did a fantastic job, I believe, my opinion, of addressing certainly the emotional, because that's what she does for a living, and what I do for a living, is address the more psychological aspects of that, emotional needs, but emotions are fight or flight, it just means there's a bit of a threat, and most emotional disorder comes from an inability or incapacity to turn that off in the proper way by meeting and addressing the need. People come to see us to sort that out, to figure that out, because it gets very convoluted and confused. It's sort of like dogs and cats. Though it seems food magically appears, just a lot of emotional connection gets attached to it. Uh, again, speaking even more confidently so than I might anything else, with my personal experiences, anecdotally, my dogs will go through separation anxiety. My dogs can develop an eating disorder simply because that is so powerful for them when they have needs and my providing that, they don't go out and find fresh water. They don't go out and catch food. Uh, they don't have to hunt in packs or if they see any sort of social dimension to my family constellation, it might be in those kind of terms. Forgive me for anthropomorphizing, projecting human attribute on animals, which I don't know how animals see things. It's just the best way I could describe it. But I think that's the correlation I'm trying to make when it comes to our humanity. I just supply the food, but I have emotional attachments because emotions let me know I'm hungry. In general, they let me know I have some primary drive that needs fulfillment. But I have to sort it out and figure out what it is. Maybe it's food, and maybe food kind of brings, anytime I eat it, some sense of either condition, satisfaction, or contentment, or as it would then be sort of tied to some sort of release of a neurotransmitter that registers some measure of satisfaction. If it's not really directly correlated to what I truly need, it won't be endearing, enduring, it might be endearing, but it won't be enduring, it won't last very long, and I might find that if the other need goes unmet and I can't identify it, I might keep turning to that as a substitute. That's principally what addiction is all about, and I think that's why I would be inclined to say humans by nature are addictive. Whether you want to argue there is such a thing as addictive personality or whether it is legitimately an addiction, 
we can become dependent upon almost anything or in something removing the balance or disrupting the ecological balance as naturally as it has evolved. (laughs) You no longer hunt or gather. You just go to the grocery store and buy it. Or you have to go to work and work five to eight through your dinner to make the money to go buy it, as with the example in the article about psychotherapists. You've got to do some maneuvers. And that's, I think, where it's a bit more of a chore. And I do think that conditioning and the way primary drives are met and the the adaptive dimension to and possibly even how evolution mechanistically, it's an essential component to the dynamic of evolution, except over a more protracted and extended period of time. But things that work... There's an emotional load for those too. And the emotional load is you feel better. But you've got to make sure your associations are correct. Coming to see someone such as myself or even Gabrielle Ferreira. That's what we try to do is help you to know what you're needful of. Better meet that need. Eliminate the possibility that you might be turning to something else. Out of whatever reason, you can't really make that proper assessment, be that objective, see it objectively for what it is as we would hope you would as then Gabrielle or myself would become involved. But if we can help you see it clearly and make the right sort of connections and then you have the need met, you still may have an addiction, we may need to break it. Counter condition it would be what I think maybe behaviorally would be what you would want to call it. You could do some rationalizing, some reasoning, and that might be sufficient. But if it's truly kind of got biochemistry attached to it and got all this stuff about satiation where all addictions go to, is somehow it's artificial sort of feeling of satisfaction, elimination of pain, which is one of those ways your body in, in sensory sort of mode or modality lets you know you need something, something's not quite right, needs to be fixed, needs to be addressed, needs to be looked at and addressed. If we can help you do that properly and disconnect all the improper sort of correlations, that's probably the answer. Now, once you get that established and you know what that is, then maybe you can go to intuitions only or maybe as you kind of unpack it, begin to sort it all out, disconnect what needs to be disconnected, make sure you reinforce the connections that are, again, most appropriate or adaptive. To get this need met, you have to do this thing. Then maybe it is intuitive. Maybe once you get that lined out properly, you can just go on, so to speak, autopilot. But that's the challenge with eating disorders because it's got all sorts of control issues Cognitive distortions, dependency issues, addictive dimensions. You can treat it as a disease, and I'm not arguing that it isn't. And I don't know that we know for a fact that there aren't genetic sort of predisposing factors or predispositions to eating disorders. Same way we think that there's genetic predispositions to addictions. I just think that humans in general are predisposed to this type of dynamic. Confusing secondary drives with primary drives and then when there is a conflict of interest between the secondary drive that you do well and meeting the primary drive, 
and going out and working so much, you can have the money to have all the things that you want, but you never get the chance to enjoy what you want because you're too busy working or you can't turn off fight or flight because whether it is actually going out and getting enough food for all the inhospitable sort of seasons in your life or whether it's trying to find substitutes, it gets a little complicated. It's not that it's not, again, a benefit. You just have to put some energy and thought into it and be objective. Once you establish that, kind of come up with, again, in an adaptive sort of way, conditioned responses, commit them to some cognitive or mental awareness, level of mental awareness, exercising, problem solving, when you can't get exactly what you want, but you just might find you get what you need. Throw back to previous podcast. Then you can at least make that adjustment or adaptation without too much of a risk of falling into a trap. It's when you don't think about it, when you're stressed out or you're really to the point where you've neglected it or you've not met the need and it's created such a state of fight or flight, threat sort of emotional reactive sort of thinking out of threat sort of a condition that's when you have problems but slowing it down talking it through trying to help calm the person trying to help the person understand there is an answer we can figure out why you're doing this generate insight emotional support all of that is attached to psychotherapy. Now, I don't want you to become addicted on psychotherapy because that could be in and of itself very helpful. But I'm going to, and I'm sure Gabrielle would do the same thing, we want to give it back to you so that you can do that for yourself. But you might need me, her, to get out of yourself long enough to see it for what it is and then let us take that on a bit, that role on a bit to help you so we can give it back to you. I think in the end, that's what happens when you're successful at treating eating disorders is that you break all of the unhealthy emotional associations. I spoke of separation anxiety with my dogs. My dogs hate to be alone. My dogs get really excited when they have a need. (laughs) And I have associated myself with their fulfillment of their general satisfaction. They're very dependent upon me. I've conditioned them that way. That me not being there freaks them out. Me not controlling the situation creates more anxiety. Now, they're not as inclined to get into a power struggle, not as inclined as humans might. They may or may not want to control me as that primary source of, that, of those answers for those primary drives or resource for the answers for those primary drives. As a human might, they may not like the idea that they can't control me. But in the end, the only person you really can control is you. And then you can only control yourself so much. But mostly, it's getting all of the mess cleaned up in your mind. The wrong associations, the distortions that's come legitimately so, partly out of the faulty or somewhat failed thinking of a reactive emotional thought, processing and processes, the lack of enough (laughs) primary drives so that you can then find safe, secure place 
satisfaction, to give it some decent thought, good, rational, reasoned thought, thinking, and come up with a better solution. You just can't spend your life being reactive. It doesn't give you, as the deeper you go into that, makes it even more difficult for you to step back and give it some really good, healthy, highest order reasoning, problem solving. If we can assist with that, then that's great. We don't want you to depend on us, though. We want to assist with that so that you can establish that ability to do that within yourself. Some of this would just be conditioned. Hopefully, even that can become second nature to you. And then you can run your life for yourself. And you don't need to come see a psychological counselor, a psychotherapist, to have that end. Except something would catch you off guard, or maybe you'd get in a little deeper than you were aware, and everybody needs a tune-up now and then. Psychology Today, the article, is entitled, Tuning Into Hunger, Another Way to Eat Right. It's just another cognitive exercise. It goes with a broad, comprehensive paradigm, elementally so, of a broader, more comprehensive paradigm of understanding where the disorder, the dysfunction might come from or how to stay clear in a preventative sort of way as much as you possibly could of making those kind of faulty connections, arrive at some distorted thinking, turn off the fight or flight long enough to be able to sort it out. I think it's a sound article. And with that, these are probably truths But I also think that outside of the physical hunger, everything else is psychological or so insidiously tied to the psychological. And and in that, our dependent sort of dimension or risk of dependency, especially when we don't foster agency, independence, autonomy, that we're probably a lot like my dogs, (laughs) a lot like our animals that we've domesticated. We really are not actualizing those skill sets the way that we were in an evolutionary sort of way as we evolved to optimal function to put us again at the apex, so to speak, of at least what we would consider to be the animal world in the sense that we would have so much say about what happens or doesn't happen with the natural environment around us. We have the power either to make it better or to destroy it. That's all I'm saying. And we can do that out of consideration and conscious awareness and choice. But we have to look at eating in that same sort of way. But it's the same way we look at everything in life. (laughs) To whom much has been given, much is required. If you have the capability, you can't just go on autopilot. And should there be situations that you didn't choose to go on autopilot, it was just survival, you may need to go see someone who can help you to process that a bit better and give you those controls back. Then go on autopilot and kind of see it more intuitively, but not because it's just so intuitive, so simple as hunger, thirst, those primary drives, but that you've got the process in place. You know how to do that. You don't have to expend a lot of unnecessary energy sorting all that out. If I could do that for you, I'd want to. The intention, once more, of the podcast is to assist in that same sort of way. And when I think of it that way, I want to invite you back 
and hopefully you will do in this way of wanting to come back to Word with Dave Clay. And until we do get a chance to meet again, I want to wish you the best of not only good health, as with some of the central features of today's podcast, the presentation today's podcast, but certainly you can't separate the two. Good mental health, behavioral health. And until we meet again, thanks.